This is the Congar Soundcast. I'm Sam Eastman. I'm Ben Greenslade Stanton. I'm uh, Alexander Hawkins, and I'm a pianist, organist, and a composer. Season 1, Episode 3. You've got an album coming out very soon. Very I mean, it's soon. out now digitally. It's out now digitally. But I haven't bought it digitally because I want to get a CD off you. you I'm going to... I'm going to... Uh, I will give I like the, a thing on a shelf. Yeah, uh, you can have that, but I gather Ben. Ben's <laughs> going to be uh, on a... He can have a download code and you can have a physical That's one. Brilliant. That's <laughs> how it works. Yes, and it's also my first foray into self-releasing music as well. So First of all, tell mm. us about the record. Um, um, so, it's a... It's, Eponymous, I guess. It's just the Alexander Hawkins trio. Um, it's got um, Tom Skinner on drums, Neil Charles on bass. Um, it's actually the first time um, we were sort of chatting off mic, as it were, about uh, have I played in a trio before. I've played plenty in trio, but I think it's the first time I've recorded, definitely under my own name, in a piano trio format. Um, so it's great, actually, because, you know, trio is one of those ones which... We've each got these formats for our instrument where, where they're sort of historically mm. loaded. And as a pianist, there are two, I think. There's the piano-based drums and there's the solo piano. Mm. And they're both, they're both things that I was eager to sit tight until I had some kind of concept for working with them, um, you know, before, before releasing anything. So I've played in trios a bunch, but this is the first time I've done my own, uh, my own thing and, um, and released it. So, yeah, so I'm kind of curious to see how it goes down in a sense. <laughs> right, so did it, I mean, did the trio come about because you were playing with these guys? Did you have a bunch of music that you felt was more suited to that? Because you've worked mm. with really varying sizes of ensembles. Yeah, I mean, I, I sort of, one of my heroes is Duke Ellington and I really adhere to the, um, right for the specific musician and the specific mm. context. So <laughs> I didn't have, um, I didn't have trio music lying around. I mean, what I do do is I try to write something um, every day so I do have sketches but you know even if it's literally a bar of music or, or a, a, a rhythm you know even if it's one chord or something I just write something down every day just as the discipline so at that stage it's not it's not format specific so I didn't I definitely didn't have trio material lying around um, it came about because um, I was invited by King's Place to play an early edition of their festival a few years ago and they asked me to do two gigs and they asked if I would do two duos and they wanted um, new combinations. And I bargained them. I want, I was at that time, I was trying to get some solo concerts together. And I said, can I do solo and trio instead of two duos? Because, you know, they were both relatively new concepts for me. So I did that. I did the solo gig and then the trio. And um, Tom and Neil, that came about because uh, the last few years I've toured very heavily with Malatu Astakke's band. And uh, Tom... Is the uh, Tom is the drummer in that, and Neil actually subs on the bass quite a lot for John Edwards. Tom and Neil also go a long way back playing in um, bands like ZU, and they both came through Tomorrow's Warriors and so on. So they have a really good rapport. And although we'd never played in a trio before, I'd logged tons and tons of hours on the road with them. So you know we had a good thing. And I also knew that they'd be really open to my music. But what was nice about it was that. Although they're fantastic players with big ears, amazing technical ability, and uh, they're not typically known for playing in sort of freer contexts. And so what was interesting to me was that they weren't coming to this music with a language, with a set of, with, with their stuff, as it were, with their licks. So it was a way of kind of learning a music together. You know, we were able to work with just unusual forms and none of us came to it with any baggage. 
and I think it you know worked worked out nicely as a result you know and we've subsequently actually worked the rhythm section for other people so you know we did a, a concert with John Sermon a couple of months ago and um, so it's kind of it's nice because we've sort of established a rapport and you know Great. So do you take sketches down and workshop them with the band? or Was there a different process to this record than with the larger ensemble? Um, well, I mean, one of the things that's challenging about Trio is what I like to do with larger groups is, I mean, some of my heroes are Anthony Braxton, um, Charles Ives. Uh, recently, I'm getting really into the music of Zanakis, you know, Stockhausen. I like these composers who have this thing of multiple events going on at the same time, you know. I like setting, within an ensemble, setting groups of people off doing their own thing. And it's somehow, we're, we're at a point with music making where technique is not a big deal. There's a, there's a sense in which if you hear something technically impressive, you think, okay, well, with the hours in the practice room, I can get that. Mm. Um, and the thing with fetishizing technique, which happens more and more now in the era of music colleges and so forth, um, is that people focus on these literal senses of playing together. They focus on tightness and they 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 focus on let's nail this funny time signature and let's hit the one together or let's mm. hit this beat and technical you know cosmetic things like that and it struck me that that's kind of sh- quite a shallow interpretation of playing together okay that's a very technical based it's one it's not the most creative right. thing in the world exactly so i'm more i'm more interested in the box in isn't it completely you know? yeah and um, one of the things on that one of the yeah. things you turned me on to that i was i will eternally be grateful for mm. was the bill dixon stuff oh yeah right the tapestries though which yeah. is just wonderful and he's and sort of reading then about his approach to yeah. making music his approach to working with ensembles and that way that the, the conventional sense we can all do that but uh, exactly forward and they're finding a new approach finding a new way well that for me is together. definitely is is interesting because you know i think that the this technical thing is is kind of impressive but attainable for all of us um the, the much deeper set of relationships in a group is is just that kind of empathy relationship it's mm-hmm. it's um musicians being able to relate on a much more fundamental level and for me that is really borne out in the music of these composers who can let people do their own thing just go off on one it's also borne out in the fact that um you know think about those great funk records or whatever i mean music is funky tower of power is funky because it's super tight and whatever but the music gets one stage funkier and that's the stage just before the wheels fall off. So that's the, the stage of the kind of the, the tender yo-yo. That's the stage of the James Brown mm. live in Paris, 1970 with, you know, Jabbo Starks and Bootsy, you know, exactly. where, where yeah. it's just dangerously on the edge. That's the funkiest, you know, there's the Tower yeah. of Paris stage and then there's the, there's the really funky stuff which comes after that. Yeah. And that's because it's held together by this empathy. And that to me is interesting because that mirrors, you know, if you think about music more broadly in terms of, Social relationships. I mean, people can relate in a very literal sense. You know, you meet somebody on the street, you can have a you can have a conversation, you can get on very well with people you don't know by engaging in a literal way, by conversing, by speaking a language with them. But often the people with whom you have the deepest relationships, you can just have this sense of a common enterprise just by being in the room together, you know? So mm. so we're we're sitting here, you know, um, Susie's sitting in the next room doing her thing and the cats are wandering around doing their thing but there's a common enterprise of just sort of hanging out and doing something together yeah. despite mm. the fact you're not doing something in a literal sense well I, I guess actually with the other stuff mm. that you've been doing where language you know is in the same sort of sense language you know that's only mm. one aspect of it isn't it right. and we can transcend that aspect of communication in music you yeah. know or whatever those different things are and you just break it down into a different different way yeah, of communicating for sure i mean the linguistic analogy is super useful for many things 
you know, with music, but you can take it too far. I mean, for example, mm. I think it's taken too too far in formal music education settings because when you think of improvisation as language, you automatically focus on what notes to play. Yeah. So you get your people like practicing their diminished licks and blah blah blah. You know, what notes do I play on this chord? And you forget to think about all the other parameters in music. Like you forget mm. to think about Bill Dixon's yeah. silence. You forget yeah. you think about timbre. You forget to think about placement within time. And those are all things that you can risk missing. And at the mm. risk of shameless self promotion mm. when we did the ghetto album, when we did the the duet improvisations on the record yeah. that kind of thematically link a lot of stuff. We mm. talked a lot about what the narrative sense was, what the story was and how it felt, but we never talked about what notes we were going to play or what mm. key we were in or any kind of musical language. Mm. We just talked about how it felt. And yeah, for me, yeah. with improvisation, it's all about not what chord is it, but what does it feel like. Yeah, right. I mean, Benny talked a lot about serving the music when we're working and mm. working together as instrumentalists to serve the tune, not to have the tune serve us as... Yeah, soloists, sure. yeah, yeah. players. Part of the reason I loved your piano album, which I just got the solo stuff. All mm. oh, right, yeah. Was because it it feels like you're serving the ensemble when there's only one of you. Right, it, right. It feels so orchestral yeah. at times with the way you approach I think, it. Yeah, I think what you say is interesting. One of the other in- things that I find really interesting is listening to um, m- music where you know because language having having said that about language it is a really useful way to think about things in music in some respects you know some musical traditions it's quite interesting listening to language based music where you don't understand the language mm. so one of the things mm. i've been listening to a lot recently is um the apala tradition from nigeria which is where you have this um you have kind of three elements you have a you have a call and response between a vocalist and a and a kind of a, a, a and a choir and um, and then it's all over a sort of an orchestra of talking drums. And so you have three people who are actually saying things. You know, if you're a Yoruba speaker, you can understand what the drummers are saying. <laughs> and then you've got call and response by the vocalist. Now, it was kind of interesting because, you know, I don't speak Yoruba. But yeah, <laughs> you can hear you can hear the ebb and flow in this incredible sort of, um, especially in the drums, you hear this incredible contour, which is just something totally alien to what you might get in Western traditions. So, you know, the language thing can be really interesting. You know, the language is deeply coded in that music book, because I don't understand it in a literal sense. It's not sort of a... But doesn't you, tie you in. You can feel like you understand an emotional truth behind yeah, it, even sure. if you don't understand yeah. the words being used to express yeah. that. Yeah, totally. And there's some, there's some really interesting literature. There's this great book, which I really love, called Beethoven's Anvil, which is a kind of for the non-specialist. It kind of deals with a lot of these phenomena that we all relate with in music, but deals with them in a, in a very scientific way. So, for example, why do people feel sad when they listen to Billie Holiday, even if they don't know her life story? Or, mm. you know, think about a gig, you know, why is it that someone will instantaneously whoop in the crowd? Or why, at the end of a concert, is there, you know, a standing ovation is not a Mexican wave. It's not somebody stands up and the person next to them stands up. If you look at a concert hall, pockets stand up, you know. And this book sort of uh, looks at scientific research which might explain these phenomena it's all tied in with things like behavior of flocks of birds and shoals of fish but one of the things that it says is that on a very fundamental level you know music is a communication based on the vibrations the sound vibrations and okay to sort of to to to, to distill this is a really interesting passage where it talks about you know look at two people communicating um in a, one of these super slow motion cameras and their body language maps in very, very predictable ways, but faster than reaction time. So it's not like you're hearing what I'm saying, processing it and thinking, ah, yes, and, you know, nodding. 
it's that there's a fundamental empathy whenever two people communicate and he ties this into this this idea of you know vibration musical vibration being the the fundamental element of music and hence rhythm being the fundamental element um you know hence perhaps the oldest traditions we know being mostly percussion based um mm. and other forms of communication such as smoke signals and so on but anyway that's all a roundabout way of saying you know that probably ties into what you're saying about the emotional impact of yeah. things like these drum choirs and stuff yeah Okay, so that was actually the um, the first track from the record. That's called um, "Sweet Duke," and it um, it actually it having said what I said about writing for the combination of musicians, that was actually from a commission for a much larger group. I was trying to do two things with that track, I guess. One, I, I thought because I always do write for the combination of musicians, I thought, well, what happens if I if I don't if I just borrow something from something else that I've written that I think could be arranged in an interesting way. And the second thing I was interested in with that was that um, playing with form and so forth. And I thought, well, one way to do that is what happens if I have a piece which is essentially formless? The idea of that piece is that nothing really relates to anything else. So I mean, the, the instructions are, I mean, I have a, I have a more or less written p piano part. Um, the title Sweet Duke comes from the material goes through a series of kind of mathematical translations in the piano, which kind of isn't interesting or actually that relevant, but that's what happens. But the the core thing which is translated is a kind of warped bit from the bridge of um, one of those early Ellington tunes. It's a warped uh, Ellington reference. And so I have a written part um, and the drum, uh, it's a little bit like, um, you know, in the unanswered question of Charles Ives, where you have this one uniform texture which keeps going in the strings and that's sort of time it just keeps going so i just wanted tom just to sit on a groove which he does and it's always different each time we play it so because the meters don't relate he can play whatever he likes when we play it's interesting like, i was going to ask mm. that because i'm like that's a that's a cool groove yeah right? yeah but that's also i mean that's super interesting as well that yeah. the fact that it's got that freedom well that's i it. mean, you know, I, mean I guess I told, it's not but within this within the context of that yeah um, that's great well one of the things i told you know neil on bass as well his instruction he doesn't have one basically he he i just told him try and play something and try not to play with me or with tom because by the end the the thing which was best i mean you know kind of what's nice in in a composition is when somebody obviously within boundaries because if you're trying to realize a big band chart or a, a more complex chart you want people to follow the rules to a large extent but one of the things that's nice in a smaller group is when people just break out of the rules because the 
the music's going that way. I mean, that, that's one of the things that I liked, you know, that I was thinking about a lot putting that group together is when we talk about being freer musicians, people kind of tend to think that that precludes playing changes or playing time as a peculiarly kind of British concept of free music, you know, freedom from. I'm much more interested in sort of freedom too. And mm. if we want to play a group, then yeah. let's do that. And I guess that's much more in the tradition of the AACM in Chicago. And, uh, you know, one of the things that Tom does brilliantly plays a groove. I mean, I really urge people to check out um, his own project, Hello Skinny, which is this fantastic, weird... I couldn't even begin to describe it, you know, but he's he's got big reputation in those groove orientated circles you know and you can hear why but i wanted musicians who are happy to do that as well yeah and you're presumably in collaborators looking for people who compliment you rather than think exactly the same otherwise yeah. there's no rub yeah if people yeah exactly I and mean, if people were thinking exactly the same as me then i wouldn't be doing something original and that would be yeah. that would be the worst space to be in so you're looking for complementary people keeping something simple mm. and what you just said about people's perceptions of, mm. of free music mm. or, or free jazz or whatever mm. these term, these genres that we want to use. The concept of keeping something simple, I guess, is not instantly what you're thinking of. I mean, to throw a stereotype, would not especially relate keeping it simple to jazz, full stop, but then mm. even going a step further and saying in, into, into free music, mm. the more avant-garde. Yeah. But in actual fact, I mean, listening to that, not saying mm. that that was... Simple, but mm. having having those those different concepts, I think people can really relate to a lot of what was going on yeah. there. And in and in fact, there were there were simple elements to it yeah. to create the whole. Well, no, that, that, no, I, I agree, and that's it. I mean, complexity is, you know, I think basically all of these things have to be options, you know, within within the palette and um, simplicity. I mean, other 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 tunes. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, there's really not a lot going on compositionally you know like I say it sets out not to have any form it's based it has a groove and you know actually at the end there you you could chop a nice sample out of the end you know Um, and in fact you know I actually I actually sort of have a there's a there's an outtake of of that particular track where I messed it up for the listening public at large but um but there's a bit a piece of Tom which there's a drum loop in there which is yeah absolutely I mean if you could get get hold of that would be amazing an amazing sample and um of course another thing about freedom as well is it's to do with your your frame of reference i you know we mentioned for example james brown mm. it seems to me that it's it's crazy to talk of that as as not free if you wanted to make that rhythm section sound you know stilted and not free you would say can you play me some abstract jazz or something you mm. know what i mean is that they they feel they feel loose they feel totally uninhibited doing what they do so it's to do with the frame of reference mm. um and so, you know, that James Brown rhythm section feels very free, very liberated and completely at ease to do whatever it wants mm. within that certain frame of reference. Um, you know, certain players, you say to them, play free, just in the same way, certain sort of um, so-called free players, if you gave them a tune with changes, would suddenly clam up and not make any sense. Mm. It is all to do with your frame of frame of reference. But absolutely, going back to what you say, I mean, simplicity, I think it's a really kind of... Um, Western classical way to think of things, to think of pushing boundaries and developing as tied in with complexity, because it's not. It can it can be tied in with complexity, mm. but also simplicity. Um, we'll tie nicely into what we started with, with as far as technique as well. Right, you know, yeah. right. This, this incessant and as we need learn, for technical playing, yeah, where that's just one aspect, isn't it? Yeah, and really. we we learn simple things first, and then we are taught that complex things are better to mm. a certain extent because we extend technique yeah, because kids, mm, yeah. kids think oh well if I'm going and moving through 
then complicated must be better. But it's yeah. like when you talk about James Brown, you talk about being free. If you if you watch the live footage, it puts me in mind a lot of the way Miles ran his mm-hmm. later bands, where mm-hmm. it's all on cue from the leader, uh-huh. and there isn't a set form. There is a, yeah. there's a real freedom to what's yeah. going on, and the, everyone's listening like hell because if he starts doing something else, instant composition. Yeah, it, it definitely it's all is. got to be following that, yeah. and there's that freedom there that even if it sounds like it's it's in four and it's sitting on a group. Yeah. It's not, we're going to do this for a set amount of time and then this Absolutely. and then everyone's going to move with it. Yes, yeah. Everyone's listening, everyone's working together at the same time to serve the music. Yeah, completely. I mean, it's one of the major blights of kind of modern music and I think it's large part down to the kind of formalised education of improvisation as well is that people, we've all heard it, you know, people do because they can. You know, people shred, you know, going, Mars is a really nice example. I mean, you know, listen to him play organ on some of those um, early 70s electric mm. things. You know, he's saying what he needs to say. He's definitely not doing because he can, because he really or, can't, actually. Or, or, or James Brown, for that matter. Right, playing, or, playing or, or Fella, on those fella yeah, playing exactly, basically yeah. anything. Exactly. I mean, he basically <laughs> can't play the piano. He can't play, well, look, this is stupid. I mean, obviously he can, but in an orthodox sense, yeah. he's not much of a keyboard yeah, player, he's right. not much of a sax player. But the, what is he doing? He's Mingus on the piano. Right, he's yeah. down which is one of the greatest like, solo piano records ever. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, it's so it's really, um, so people sort of doing because they can is a particularly kind of modern trait, you know, tied in with the kind of the educational industrial complex if you like <laughs> that's what yeah. that i think that's where a large part of that comes from i've got to say something about the just the production right. on that from listening to a track in mm. your living room here mm. which is obviously going to be different to listening experience yeah. that the people here so you don't mention a producer no so i'm gonna mm-hmm. i'm gonna throw it out there and yeah. say it's self-production, right? Yeah, yeah. And it's uh, recorded and mixed by Ben Lambden, mm-hmm. big fan. I thought, hearing it mm. in here, that the drums were quite high. Yeah. I thought they were up front. Yeah. You know, I, I really dig that. You yeah. know, I think that's... And you mentioned the hip-hop thing mm-hmm. and the sample basis. That's I heard a load of that mm. sort of going through that track. Mm. Is that a trait throughout or was it specifically to that track or was it even something that yeah. maybe you didn't think about? Well, no. Um, I mean, what, what I would say is that Ben records things in a fantastic you know he makes acoustic instruments sound very very acoustic yeah um and i don't know i don't understand enough about the um technicalities of recording to understand why this is but one of the characteristics of that style of recording i think is that it does sound very different on mm-hmm. different systems you know if i were to listen to that next door mm-hmm. i was thinking exactly the same as we were listening you know it sounds sounds very drum heavy one of the things that i like i wanted to do with this trio was to capture that sense of a little bit like those very in-your-face recordings, something like Money Jungle or something, mm. where the sensation is as live. And if you're listening okay. to a piano trio as live, yeah. on a tune like that, the drums are going to be up front. Um, you know, it was recorded all in the same room, no yeah. cans. Okay. So it's a fairly true representation in that respect. So yeah, the drums are up front. In other uh, instances, they're they're much more underneath. Um, okay. But yeah, I know it's, it's an interesting point because I, that, that same thing occurred to me as we listened through here. You know, that's one of the things I like actually is the kind of the precarious nature of, you know, listening, you know, the, the concept of recording improvised music as well. Oh, yeah. You know, it's, it's kind of an interesting one as it is. I mean... Well, right, um, to be fair, recording any <laughs> right, music, the right. listening experience, sure. right? You know, you can, yeah. as we know, you can spend hours mm. focusing on a mix mm. or with the most expensive oh, yeah. equipment or in your front room or in your garage or in the back of your car yeah, or whatever. Yeah. But in fact, a, a lot of it will boil down to where that 
end listener is yeah. listening to that well, and that it. equipment. And you have no control over that. Exactly. Yeah. It's, which is completely always precarious and always a worry. It's interesting you mentioned Money Jungle because mm. I did want to ask you about that. Yes. Yeah. I mean, the minute you mentioned Ellington, yeah. you, you, obviously a lot of people think the big man of yeah. football, but I've always found amongst Ellington fans, Money Jungle to be quite divisive. Right. Mm. It's, it's mm. an album that everyone seems to have yeah. an opinion on one way or the other because it's in many ways so atypical of yeah. what the yeah, concept of Ellington so. is. I mean, my view is that it's one of the very greatest yeah. jazz recordings, full stop. Yeah. Um, probably the second greatest piano trio recording there is. Okay, what's um, number so one, what's the one, one it's the It's the Art Tatum trio with Joe Jones and Red Calendar on, nice. uh, on, on Pablo from 56. That's, that's the one. But um, Money Jungle's probably second, you know. But no, I think it's fantastic. Actually, that's a record which really bears out what we were saying about, you know, the funkiest stage of music being just before the wheels fall off because my yeah. god you listen to that record if you were to plot on a graph where their respective beats come you know like <laughs> yeah. you know M- Mingus is kind of falling half an hour later than Max Roach and Ellington yeah. somewhere in the middle and and somehow it's at the same time like the thrill of that record is this this sort of centrifugal force like everyone is spinning outwards towards complete disaster yeah I mean I, I love it because yeah. it's, it's Mingus and I love Mingus and it's yeah. Ellington and I love Ellington yeah. and it's kind of like and then suddenly there's Max Roach as well, and it's just, yeah, it's, it's, it's unbelievable. I know that there was, the major antagonism on the session was between Minkus and Max Roach, yeah. um, because they'd started uh, debut their, their record label, and that, that had sort of come to a sticky end before before this record was made. Because that was always allegedly the story of Mingus's shortest career in Ellington's Orchestra. Right, yeah, yeah. And then he was invited to resign because Duke never fired never anyone. Never fired anyone, yeah, exactly, yeah. yeah, yeah. I also think that in some respects, it's, I mean, it is atypical in the sense that it's Ellington appearing, um, uh, you know, ostensibly in a trio of, of equals. Also, it, you know, people cast it as atypical because it's him appearing this sort of conspicuously more contemporary feel. There are there are recordings of Ellington doing these radically modernist things with his own band. I mean, one of the most extraordinary examples of sort of avant-garde piano playing is there's this amazing record on Columbia called Piano in the Foreground, mm. where there's this version of Summertime where Ellington plays so out and so aggressively. It's unbelievable. I can't think of a piano player who who ever hit the keyboard that hard and with that kind of percussive touch it's it's really extraordinary i mean as a blindfold test it's almost difficult to pick you hit i mean you think you probably would land on duke but you know the touch is almost like cecil taylor sometimes uh, it's unbelievably aggressive you know there are these little moments throughout the ellington discography you know think as well back to the early 40s in coco where he plays um where he takes the last solo i think it is and he sort of plays this bitonal piano solo on top of this kind of b flat minor blues you know he was pretty out there. He was a bit like Armstrong. He just got unfairly painted in as a, as a kind of an establishment figure. But actually, the oral evidence doesn't necessarily bear yeah. it out, I don't think. And one of my, I mean, one of my favourite Ellington moments, or one of my favourite pieces of piano playing, is mm. that, that introduction to Rockin' in Rhythm. Oh, yeah. Dukish. And yeah. I sort of, every, every so often, I'll find a new version of him doing of that. that yeah, and yeah. I think it's beautiful. It's incredible. incredible. But that piano intro, for me, I oh, just, man. I could go back and listen to that Completely. over and over again. And it's one of those <laughs> things that I find something new every time. And yeah. every time I discover something new in music that I'm really into and I love it and it's great yeah. and then, then I'll hear kind of Duke and I'm like, oh yeah, yeah. he's doing it seven yeah, years completely. ago I mean no I mean Ellington ago. really as, as piano players go he, he really is right at the beginning of that lineage which runs through you know Monk and Herbie Nichols mm. and Hassan um, Cecil Taylor it's a little bit like you know if he'd never have 
walked in front of a big band, he'd be regarded as a, a, a as one of the greats of the music. You know, just in the same way as if Roland Kirk had only ever picked up one horn, he would still mm. be one of the greats. Yeah. So, you yeah. know, one of those seams, which is actually really quite unexplored in many respects. I mean, it seems that in this country, especially, well, actually not even just in this country, you know, people really fetishize this kind of post-Jarrett, post-Chick career lineage you know, there are some genius piano players who just come from somewhere totally different. You know, Sun Ra, I mean, look, if Sun Ra had never played with a band, he would be, you know, one of the most amazing piano players ever. When I got Song Singular. Oh, yeah. I don't know, I was, I was surprised in a way that Take the A-Train was on there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I thought, when I heard your take on it and I heard mm. the way, it just seemed obvious. It seemed unimaginable that you wouldn't do it right. like that or that you okay. wouldn't do that. Yeah. But, so the process of that was that mm. reinventing a standard, reinventing one of the most often used standards yeah. was it attributed to you I mean, obviously well actually them, actually but. i mean you know i play that tune a lot part, part of it was that i was looking for a standard which everyone played you know mm. something to to take apart but not not take apart because kind of deconstruction is is sort of boring i mean it's kind of old news because people have been doing it for a while i mean it's not boring since it's a nice way to approach it but in itself it's not very how about how about reimagining right well yeah. you know something like that yeah because it doesn't have that yeah it's a bit like a, it sounds like a phrase we might use in the future yeah it? i'm yeah. sure we'll come back to that in the future <laughs> yeah i mean you know and and actually a train itself i i started playing a lot um as a result of listening to sunra play in mm. fact there's a version live from montreux in the early 70s with this john gilmore solo which just has to be heard to be believed it's just <laughs> unreal and i just listened to that you know incessantly um but uh, Sun Ra also used to play it solo and he or and often would play long piano introductions to it. And he just has this kind of brilliant melodic twist to that main sort of hook of the tune, which I really loved. And I just thought it was an interesting tune to play with. It just really fits squarely in with those piano players I love. Ellington, Sun Ra, you know, Billy Strayhorn. And it like, because it's so um, motivically strong, it lends itself to kind of a non-linear approach. You know, so there are some tunes which I... I love which are fairly conservative in their melodic shapes it would be harder to take them apart because it would all sort of blur into one whereas a train with those kind of intervallic shapes it's very recognizable whatever mm. you do to it Take the A train mm. from your solo piano. My solo oh. piano thing called Song Singular uh, from a couple of years back now, I guess. So that was that was Take the A train, and yeah, that was kind of my Sunra Strayhorn Ellington tribute in a in a sense. Yeah, beautiful man, absolutely nice. beautiful. The the approach, the time, 
let alone any of the notes you put in it is just oh thank you it's yeah. just wonderful it's just I mean to me lilting and sort of almost dance like just really really beautiful oh thank you yeah I mean you know, the dance feel is kind of I, I, I thought this actually is like the a lot of my album titles kind of have song or dance in there somewhere so it's got kind, of, kind of something I feel that's important maybe it ties into that mm. so that do vibrational you feel there's thing a, mm. a narrative approach to the way you obtain mm. music and when no. you talk about a song like that yeah that... no I mean it in a much more abstract sense one of the things that I'm really quite clear on I think at least in my own mind is that there's never a narrative element to, to my music it's never it's never about something so you know the the titles for example are either abstract or figurative so I did this sort of jumping around this lovely big band project last year with uh, with Wayne Horvitz um, and uh, and he has a tune called A Walk in the Rain because he lives in Seattle so A Walk in the Rain yeah. is, a, is a great thing that's completely the opposite from what my tunes are they're, they're never they're never about anything well for, for a variety of reasons I mean I'm, there are a few formal reasons I mean thinking about composition one of the things that I'm interested in is for a start moving the decision making away from the composer um, you know, so I'm interested in the people in the group being able to guide the performance as well. And I'm also interested in things being non-linear. I mean, you know, we, we've come from a period, especially in the jazz tradition, that head solos head thing is such a sort of hackneyed thing. Well, nowadays that thing of read the chart top to bottom is such an old approach that I'm just interested in if there are other ways around that. And as soon as you start interrupting that kind of linear thing, you get lots of problems, like how do you shape a performance? But also it means that the narrative thing is, is less easy because if your story is about a, a walk to the shops but you get lost and end up in the forest, you know, if you go non-linear, you may be in the forest before you decide to leave the house, let alone get to the shops. So that, that's one problem with it. And the other thing I would say is that I do think there's a lot of mileage left in things like, um, you know, linear linear music and head solo head and through composed music. I mean, I think that's a, a really valid approach and a really strong one in many many respects you know the shape of the performance being definitely one of them um, it's just something that I think you can explore alternatives to it and that's one of the things that I do so as a result yeah the, the things are ne never figurative so you know titling for me it can happen in a, in, a, in a number of ways what one of the the, the the tunes on my recent ensemble record was named after a village in Greenland I was, I was on holiday in Iceland and there was a newspaper in this cafe and it advertising this flight to Greenland. This, this word just looked absolutely bizarre on the page. It had two Q's, two T's, two I's next to each other, two T's. This bizarre thing. And just there was this visual connection that I How made. How do you pronounce that? I have no idea. I've, I have no idea. I've, I never I've caught it. i stared at the back of that <laughs> yeah. album. And then you then you feel like the guy who does that annoying, um, you know, that thing at the gigs. Oh, this one doesn't have a name yet. If anyone could give us, you know, you're yeah, doing something right. as bad as that. Like. Yeah. But anyway, that word visually just set off a cue in me. It just something, there was some kind of kinship. The, that particular tune works with a slightly odd canon. And so that idea of things being sort of offset and repeated just seemed to be mirrored in that title. But so much to say that that has that strange title because the word looks like the structure rather than because it's about mm, that fishing sure. village in Greenland where I've never been. And also, you know, it's important to me that um, titles can steer the listener. Sometimes that's a really important thing to do. And, and other times, you know, it's not something that I'm necessarily interested in doing. It's a bit like that band from Norway, Super Silent. Right. Yeah. You know, their records, I, I think they're just, they're literally just numbers. Yeah. They don't, they don't uh, I'm not sure whether they 
when they perform, they would say that. Sure. This is number one from album number yeah. the six or anything like that. But there's also another band called 1982. Their track titles are kind of, I think, literally the length of the, the song. Yeah, um, yeah, there are some... Something like that. Mm. It's not giving anyone yeah, you know, a pretense... And sometimes, you know, sometimes doing that can be very powerful. I mean, um, and obviously, again, this is context specific, but I was talking earlier about listening to lots of Zanakas recently. I was reading this fantastic book about him. That's just sent me back to the some of the recordings. But um, most of his pieces have Greek titles, which to a non-Greek speaker are, mm-hmm. of course, fairly cryptic. But there's just one tune for, uh, it's a harpsichord piece, called Il de Gore. That immediately, in a way where I don't understand the Greek too well, immediately you have this reference to kind of a slave, uh, an island where they, you know, the staging point for shipping slaves off, off West Africa. And that immediately then has a really powerful impact because there's there's one title which jumps out at you as being much more literal. And even you can see from some of Zanakis' Greek titles as well, that a lot of them are very abstract, you know, nomos mm. alpha, nomos gamma, things like this. Um, well, can, it ties mm. back into the, the whole language thing as mm. well. You know, li- I, I did a lot of Latin music right. stuff in yeah. the past, and I'll, I'll still listen to a lot of that, African, yeah. all sorts of different stuff. And when you don't understand the lyric mm. or even the title of the song, yeah. you're listening in different ways. Yeah, and, and that same song could be the saddest lyric in yeah. the world. And not having a knowledge of what they're singing about. There's, there's a know, really interesting a... Um, record. It's on, it's on Leo, and it's a trio of um, Don Moyet, who's the percussionist from the, the Art Ensemble of mm. Chicago, um, John Chikai, and um, a German musicologist called Hartmut Gerken. They're field recordings. They went around, I forget which country in West Africa. But anyway, those guys have studied African music, but at sort of one step removed. And if I remember right, there's a tune where Don Moyet starts a groove that he's clearly learnt from a, either a, a record or secondhand from mm. a, some older musician. And you can hear in this field recording, there's the, the atmosphere immediately tenses up. Something strange has happened. And what, what happened, and you, you read this in the liner notes, what had happened was that he'd played this rhythm, which unknowingly was, I think it was maybe a funeral rhythm, but this rhythm had a very specific connotation. Right. So all the, all the villagers heard this and they're like, wow, he went there. You know, he, yeah. he did that. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it just, yeah, it's a very interesting thing. You don't appreciate the... And to him, I'm sure he was aware there was some significance. But Well, I mean, it's super know. easy in the in the modern age and in the Western world to forget For sure. the roots of music. And, Absolutely. And, and, and the and impact the, of music when it's ingrained in a society. The impact, so much the impact not of disposable entertainment. Right. Exactly. Right. The, the communication aspect, all yeah. of those sorts of things. No, no, absolutely. I mean, it's a, it, yeah, it's an interesting lesson, but it's, it's quite, it's quite dramatic because it's sort of captured kind of on the record. And... Are you into the, the Zorn game pieces? Um, you know, I've, I've done not so much. I think they're, I think they're really interesting ways. I think of doing just when things. you were talking about yeah. working with the ensembles and the way the ensemble yeah. works together, and when you, when you listen to John talk about how he found the players for those, yeah, it yeah. became very much about not looking for the the technical players, not yeah. looking for the chopsy players, looking for the players who would play with the ensemble. And especially when you get someone that's like play a duet with someone, with the person yeah. next to you, and then someone else is off in a corner and their direction is do something with a saw. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. I mean, I, um, I've i never done any of them. Uh, some friends of mine 
did do because the thing about these pieces is sometimes it's really quite difficult to get the instructions uh but some friends of mine did do cobra and you know other other friends of mine have have played in in them with zorn um i've never got into them i think they're amazing and he's clearly a, a hugely influential figure in those kind of developing these non-linear patterns it's a very under hugely influential way of doing them mm. i mean he's a definite innovator in that respect yeah i just yeah again we were talking in the in the car on the way mm. up here about improvisation serving the group and mm. when you talk in jazz about group improvisation you think a lot about that old new orleans thing yeah, you think yeah, yeah. about that it's a part of history and now it's mm. about that head solo yeah, yeah, yeah. sort of the bob construct of yeah yeah it. the stuff that you listen to bitches brew and it's all group improvisation yeah, you listen yeah. to the late miles and you listen yeah. to all the stuff yeah. where the, the one the singular isn't you know, you can really hear that it's not just about the, the single, yeah, and that you, single player. So yeah, you go and see Sun Mar and of course, whole, this whole sort of explosion. Mm. Of well, if you're a thoughtful thinking musician um, and you, you're interested in group dynamics and how music is made, you realise that empathy is one of these fundamental relations and that that's more fundamental than the individual. And I think there's something to be said there. That goes some way to explaining why you will find musicians leaning more to sort of leftist or socialist models of of politics because the the individual is important but it's not doesn't have primacy and mm. that's where we stand apart from the kind of the you know the thatcherite reaganist um ideologies because empathy and the group is the fundamental doesn't mean the individual can't have expression so i think there's i think there are actual concrete reasons why apart from the fact that we're all um you know impoverished and struggle for funding and subsidy and blah 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 but you know there there are actual concrete reasons why as thinking musicians you probably will side with an ideology when you create art for art's sake yeah, not for sure. commercial imperative yeah. you then yeah. think in a different Outside way as well you're not thinking about yeah, that yeah. business model of music yeah completely but, I mean I remember I saw Mingus back at Ronnie Scott's mm. sort of every night of their week run yeah the week I think it was the week or the week after uh, Bush Junior we got in for the first right. time oh. it was like a manifesto every night yeah mm. absolutely and it was just like well we're going to play a blues and we're going to play a ballad yeah but for the rest of you know, yeah. no, we're just gonna play all the political tunes. Yeah, yeah. We're gonna sit here yeah. and we're like gonna tables of four, yeah, like twenty yeah, times yeah. a night. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we're sitting there going, but we agree with you because yeah. we're here. Yeah, you know? so, yeah. There, I mean, there is that curious thing actually. And um, I, I was reading. Uh, there was an interesting um, article which I was reading online this morning about recent concert uh, concert at the Barbican of um, uh, what was it called Jazz for Labour and it was a sort of a oh, yeah. um, a bunch of guys at the Barbican who'd sort of done a concert in support of um, New Labour. I guess it is, and uh, which was which was interesting because on the one hand, um, as musicians are, you tend to be preaching to the converted a lot of the time, which is kind of an awkward truth. But unless you make efforts to take your music out there and confront or at least encounter new audiences, it's difficult. You are playing to largely sympathetic people. Yeah, but anyway, this uh, this article was very interesting because it it was almost it, it did make this point that actually you know. If you're if you're a left leaning musician, you you're not really siding with the Labour Party, who are just a sort of a less right wing party at the <laughs> moment. You know, in in most respects. Uh, yes, I can't remember how we got there, but <laughs> yeah, cool. I want to ask you mm. something. It's mm. going to completely spin the direction here. You mentioned harpsichord before. Oh yeah, we've listened to some piano. Yeah, you and I first. I think. Yeah. Well, we played in a couple of different things, right. but my yeah. my most recent memory is is doing the big trains haymaker yeah, thing, yeah. where you're, you know, the funk and soul thing, where yeah. we're kind of doing the Hammond mm. organ. You've done some Hammond organ I stuff. Have, yeah. So what's your preference on instrumentation, really? Oh. And I'm and I'm pretty sure I can guess what it's Yeah, gonna yeah. Be. No, I mean at, at heart I'm a I'm a I'm a I'm an acoustic musician, so mm -hmm. my, my preference is Steinway D grand piano. <laughs> That's what <laughs> cool. Yeah. Cool. Um, depending on what the thing you know. But um no look, I think I think the thing is, um 
you know, I'm perfectly capable of losing control by myself in a musical performance. I can, I can, stuff can go wrong very easily. So I like, I, I like, you know, my instrument, I like a kind of a, an analog, a real thing with yeah. kind of strings and wood and sure. something living and breathing. Actually, you know, the, the Hammond organ is, um, is actually a kind of living, breathe, I say breathing, I mean, usually wheezing kind of instrument yes. in itself. Yeah. But, you know, my, my heart is with the piano. I really do love the Hammond organ. What I, what I really don't love is sort of digital instruments. There are certain people who do that brilliantly, but I think they have to be treated, you know, they're, they're different instruments. It's not, yeah. Maybe it's not quite like a, 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 an upright bass is playing a, an electric bass. You know, for me, it's not very interesting treating an electric piano as though it were a normal piano because, sure. of course, it's going to come up short. And there are some players who, who do it brilliantly, who play keyboards brilliantly. And also, I'm, I'm, I like the challenge of the purely acoustic instruments. I mean, you know, there's a real vogue now for people to manipulate things electronically, mm-hmm. you know, whether that's through post-production or live. And there's kind of a bloody-minded part of me which kind of wants to try and forge something just by using the, you know, convinced that the sort of the acoustic instruments have got plenty of mileage left in them. But you know, as as I say, so it's all it's all personal. I mean, I love I love listening to other people cool. plugging in for sure. So how did your Hammond recordings, mm. or that ensemble or, or so forth, yeah. how did that come about? Well, I mean, my background. I mean, I've always been self-taught as a jazz musician, but I, I did play the organ sort of the church organ mm. to really quite a high level, I guess, when I started out. I've always, I, I suppose I have facility with kind of two... Well, first of all, I suppose I understand registration, which is one of the, the, the challenges with a Hammond organ. Um, obviously, it works slightly differently on a, on a church organ, but the, the principles are loosely the same. And I guess I have facility using my feet as well as my hands. Not that that's necessarily done that much in more idiomatic Hammond playing. That came about because there was a, a record label, Bow Weevil, uh, that's Mark Morris. He'd had this idea. He, he'd done several records with the rhythm section of John Edwards and Steve Noble. Mm-hmm. And he had this idea of making a sort of free Hammond trio. I guess the unusual thing being that it had a bass rather than a guitar. So he'd asked Steve Noble, and Steve knew that I played, and said, would I be up for it? And I, of course I was. Um, so we did it. And actually the first session was sort of a non-session because we got there and literally within about five minutes, I mean literally five minutes or so of turning up the Hammond blew up which they do yeah, occasionally they do, yeah. Don't they? yeah they do the technical uh, aspect there was a there was a bang and a fire and it died at the point of the fire was this when your love of acoustic instruments yeah yeah this is what I thought yeah yeah I told well, you yeah. you know, you know yeah. but, I've, uh, I've seen a piano go up in smoke <laughs> <and> right. <laughs> um, there's, there's a great there's a great scene in the um, Space is the Place that, that, that film with with Sunrise that kind of black exploitation film where yeah. he's playing in the playing in the strip joint at the start he's playing so fast yeah, and yeah. hard the thing just <laughs> explodes and, um, yeah. But yeah, but the Hammond. So then we then we scheduled another session. Got enough material. Mark liked it so much that he put out a CD and then a vinyl, both you know different different mm. material. And so at that stage, there had been more sessions than gigs for that band. And then through a strange series of events, we got invited to play with Joe McPhee, and we did that as a quartet with Joe. And obviously, you know, listen to those classic kind of records, stuff like Nation Time and uh, you know Shaky Jake and stuff. And he's using using kind of electric keyboards and Hammonds and so on. So we struck up a thing with Joe and the band sort of took off from there really. Um, and we now more often than not do it as a quartet. We do occasionally do trio gigs. Mm-hmm. And so that was really nice. And then we got to do it three, four times with Marshall Allen, which was great. It was really nice because it it's not quite virgin territory playing playing Hammond organ in these more open contexts, but it's there are not many precedents. And so actually you can play with a 
you know, play with a certain freedom, just not having to worry about what other it's people It's certainly not the first thing that you automatically no. think of. The tonal capabilities yeah. that you can create from yeah. your background in the church organ, but there is a lot of scope for... Um... Yeah, it's it's fantastic. It's You can really mess around with things. You can create some funny effects. Um, the thing about it being an analogue instrument is you can... And for me, it's intimately tied up with the Leslie and how the Leslie yes, works. Totally, and totally. Um, you can really mess with people's perception, live especially, but you can overdrive it in fantastic mm. ways. You can create all sorts of unlikely things because... That classic Hammond sound, you know, those instruments were only made for a relatively short period and they're all pretty old. Yeah. There are all these really nice gremlins that you find. You play and you find these bits which don't work and they create these beautiful things. <laughs> the one thing I'd say about it is it's it's difficult to, you know, quick changes. You have to be, you know, you t- tend to think of some kind of improvised music often involving quick changes and yeah. quick reactions. That's harder to do. Yeah. It can be done, yeah. but you really need to plan ahead or be very very dexterous with the instrument so it creates an interesting thing i mean one of the things i love about it I and mean, that's why for me it works so well in that in the kind of the the funk context is mm. that in that where you're dealing with where the power comes through repetition and the trance like repetition repetition yeah. repetition is great you you just select your 888 you know chorus yeah. third chorus and then you know second percussion or whatever sit in the pocket and it's fantastic um, i mean to be fair i think as an instrument that's, that's not the piano mm. so having the having the volume pedal mm. as part of the instrument yeah. the the sound differences that you yeah. can do everything that you've just mentioned i kind of put that in in a similar sort of pocket as like a pedal steel right as well yeah. where it's a living and breathing thing yes it is it's still got so much control oh yeah yes absolutely. i think the moving air from the Leslie, it yeah, it puts it much more in the category of a brass instrument or a voice or yeah, just or oh, it's a wind instrument or a voice or whatever, you know. from uh, Spontaneous Combustion, which was the organ group Decoy uh, with Joe McPhee playing uh, Pocket Trumpeter. That's intense, man. And I was just looking at the cover. It's a double album, right? Corded line. Mm. So my my question to you, a a lot of, for lack of better term, from my perspective, the avant-garde aspect, very much in the moment. And Mm. I, I personally relate to it generally better when I'm there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. But the, the difference between taking that into the studio or what you yeah. do in the studio versus the live aspect. A, l- a lot of the time, I side with 
with you. I mean, it's a really, for me, live music is the thing, really. Now, not not always. I mean, for example, for me, the more there's an element of composition involved, the more that sometimes studio sound it's a little bit like the difference between club and concert hall yeah, totally. you know the, the studio sound can help I mean don't get me with, wrong yeah. you know from a production background I love yeah. tweaking and, and doing and perfecting yeah. you know I love studio stuff yeah. from my own playing yeah sure stuff. yeah yeah but yeah I, I know it certainly has a it has a certain thing I mean definitely that group like you can hear it's all completely improvised but but you know the grooves and things do pop up quite a lot yeah it's the flow it's the moment it's the sort of the energy yeah, and, you, you, you know uh, Bursting off the audience. As yeah, well, that's right? it. You know, yeah. and in a small club, that can be really electric. I mean, well, I guess I mean, I that, mean in the studio, it can mm, be quite sterile or very sterile. It can be different. Sterile. Yeah, it yeah. can be. Yeah, and yeah. it's and for sure, you can get really, really vibey studio albums. Mm, um, totally. But that that sort of that freer end of things. Yeah, I think there's something. You know, the back and forth with the audience, a band like that where you have a huge kind of dynamic range, you react to the, you know, to the audience. Um, there's a couple of bands I do like that. I mean, with Lewis Maholo as well. Um, you know, that's a slightly different thing as well because he has such kind of emotional resonance with people, especially if there are South Africans in the audience. You know, it's such a, a politically charged mm. gig as well in, in, in some respects. That, but yeah, live those gigs can take you to moments where you rarely get to in the studio. So yeah, for me, I mean, look, it, it varies. And I know that there are, of course, kind of classic moments, you know, in the studio, in the history of that music as well. But yeah, live does does capture a, a certain thing. But for me, yeah, that particular group is, is a, live, a live thing. And I think the first record we did in the studio, but there have been two or three since then. They've, they're all live because that just works better for us <laughs> sure totally i mean working with live musicians in the studio is very much about feeling and, and sort of trying to get away from that sterility yeah. or what the just the surroundings because mm. generally you're in a windowless vacuum of that's a void you know it, yeah. and okay some great studios studio design if it looks nice and all that sort yeah, of stuff but i just completely. feel sometimes that you you got to work a little bit harder when you're in that in that kind of sterile yeah. situation to get to the mind yeah. space or, or, or i think you know i think i think it that that can definitely be true yeah it's a case of either you work harder to get to that same space or you just treat the studio recording as a different beast right because one of the things that of course you can get which you can also get live, so it's not an exclusive thing, is you can get a real sort of a focus, a real kind of intimacy. You know, sometimes that kind of retreating and playing totally. very, very sparely is difficult to do, and it's brave, and I love it when mm. people can do that live. I mean, Bill Dixon, again, mm. you know, the space is, um, you know, Leo Smith, that yeah. much space is brave live, but, you know, a studio can really tease that out in a certain way. But for that kind of energy-based music, I, I agree. I mean, live really, that that's typically a, a preference i think it's an interesting issue definitely and mm. uh, yeah. i think i hear it live in my head when i'm listening to it but if, mm. like if i listen to lonely woman mm. you know that's that's a studio track. yeah that's mm. that's a studio album that's, yeah. but in my head it feels like a live like track there. Yeah, because yeah. that energy is there and that yeah yeah definitely thing. i don't know i think maybe i always feel like there's a difference when you're playing in the studio and you're playing for the musicians mm. Whereas sometimes when you play live for the audience, I think that there can be a slight difference in the approach in the in the. Energy. Oh yeah, absolutely. And also as well, it depends on the the ethic of the the band or or the producer. I mean, we talked earlier about how I self produced all my albums. I mean, I have had, sometimes uh, you know had people there in the control room that I can ask as a question, but never had as sort of an interactive producer in that way. 
But as a producer, you know, of course, one of the questions is, is what you're trying to do just get a much better sounding version of what it would be like live, which is often the jazz model. You sit, sit down, maybe the solo's a bit shorter, but you sit down and play the tune. Or, you know, do you take advantage of the many amazing things you can do in a studio post-production wise, build up the track bit by bit. The studio is also an instrument, I suppose, is the, is the it bottom to- line. It, it totally yeah. is. I mean, I literally could have said that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's absolutely well, what that's you keep true. telling me. And that's why, that's why, I mean, well, like yourself, you get producers. Are you a producer? Are you an instrumentalist? Well, they're kind of it's, the same it's, thing. Well, you know? exactly, yeah. but it's, it's kind of in the modern age, even with like live sound engineers, mm. and you have people from such disparate backgrounds and have studied, and I'm, pro-education i'm not yeah, anti yeah. but you you find people who have studied certain things and have their ways of working now that's that's cool but you know from doing some live sound myself and, and producing and recording i think it's very important that people are, are using their ears mm-hmm. you know you need the technical skills no mm-hmm. doubt but you also need to kind of know what you're working with and what you're doing oh, yeah. because what what you've just said there you know when i was doing the spike orchestra thing or when i'm doing my mm-hmm. own bits and pieces you know, i've just kind of come to realize that with digital recording now you could spend hours and perfect it to, yeah. within an inch of its life yeah and it can sound very sterile the point being recording is very much it's in the moment yeah it's then and there and sure you want to get the best that you can at the time but especially with improvised music yeah. and whatnot there's there's vibe there's feel yeah. there's so many well, more aspects and also it. i think the thing with actually what the perfect track is is actually quite an elusive idea because yeah. you know i was listening to uh impressions so curtis mayfield and mm. um uh which track was it is it keep on pushing or move on up or you know one of the one of the, mm. the real classic tracks anyway mm. there's a horrendous trumpet split on one of these yeah. big <laughs> entries yeah and and actually but there are these little things where you could correct and correct and correct you, you can actually suck the suck the life out of it totally. so actually what is the perfect version is not is actually quite a slippery concept in totally. in, in some respects totally. and, um, and it's also it's a question of degree as well because yeah. you know you wouldn't have felt like a massively interventionist producer if you'd pushed the button on that and go look can we just do the trumpet again because that's, no, exactly. that's a pretty horrible exactly. split <laughs> but you know so you could maybe get rid of a split but um, there's another one of the tunes I can't remember which one actually where you, you know, it's classic. You know, as working musicians, we all know the scenario. You go in there and you do something on really short rehearsal mm. or it's on a gig where someone's like, let's just try this tune I've done. And they're clearly doing this because the bass player takes a wrong turn and he just goes to he goes to the four rather than yeah. the five or something. Yeah. And of course, within a beat, he's back on it or whatever. But it's one of those things where if you were to clean up every little bit of that track, then you'd... Take the humanity the, out. The right, mu- exactly. Like the music's made in the mistakes, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. I also love all the other little bits that, even in the studio, that I like to hear the foot coming off the piano pedal. I like yeah. the click of the keys on the saxophone. We uh, When we produced the uh, ghetto stuff, mm. one of my favourite moments on that was pushing up the sound of Moss turning his... Oh yeah. oh yeah. Oh right. yeah. So yeah. just before he goes for his his yeah. blow, yeah, 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 we've yeah. got the sound the of the amp yeah. going up and just yeah. the slide yeah. Oh, from yeah, the amp. Of I mean, it's kind of just yeah. like we 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 didn't consciously go to record that. We noticed no, it you in noticed post, it and, and then it's yeah. like the first question is, do we want this? Is it a mistake? Yeah. Or instantly for me, it was just yeah. like that's a beautiful moment. That's Actually, a, that's yes, a really human s- moment. They're the, the things that just, take yeah. you into the room. Do you reckon you'd be able to tell the pedal yeah. sound from different pianos? Oh. Like now, I read somewhere that Steinway has quite a specific Man, that pedal is like sound. Most Alan Partridge idea. Yeah. You know, I know, but I imagine how cool that would have been. Yeah. Actually, here, I, 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 I yeah, recorded yeah, yeah. some oh, pedal goodness. sounds. What, oh. what is this? Pedal sounds with famous pianists. I'm not sure because it really depends on how, how, how close you record it as well. Yeah, and totally. and um, So the answer is, I probably 
probably couldn't tell. But I, yeah, I'm. I'm. I'm it's something well, look, I've, I've become just thrown the challenge aware. down. Yeah, for yeah, you. yeah. So <laughs> when we do another podcast, yeah, so, you, so ne- next time I would be like ready you to be you. able. The yeah. answer would be, yeah, I can totally nail oh, that. Yeah. Don't worry, I'll never test you. No one will ever come and test you. I'll be here. Hope. Well, we might have started something here. This <laughs> might be. This might be the sort of the um, all these kind of games start in a humble way. So if you if you come across this record blue that most oh, people yeah, do, yeah, right, a really interesting and and. Peter, Peter's a friend of mine, um, Peter Evans, and uh, I was chatting with this journalist, and and uh, and he said, so, so do you do you think you can tell the difference? And of course, I, I, I my opening gambit would be, well, of course you can tell the difference. You can tell that the, the drummer, and it's no, it's no disrespect to the drummer to say that he doesn't sound like Jimmy Cobb or whatever, mm. but it's a lot harder to tell, you know. So, so when they're when they're playing time and when he's on the ride, simple, you can you can tell it's not Jimmy Cobb or whatever. But then, first of all, if you'd had it blindfold tested, if it was on in the background and you weren't listening too hard, then it would be much harder to tell. Mm. And then the second thing is, on the stuff where he's not kind of on the ride symbol and something like flamenco sketches, mm. I said, you know, it's much harder to tell. And, and sure enough, the journalist pulls out the two <laughs> tracks and he pulled out this little bit of the miles and this little bit for most other people do the killing. And he's like, okay, let's, let's see if we can tell. And damn, I've got to say, they're really similar. I mean unbelievably to the extent that he actually was able to play them superimpose them on top of each other and you can hear a tiny bit of sort of it feels like chorus on the trumpet right. because yeah. but the, yeah. the piano it just sounds like one piano in there and the, the bass sounds like one you know it's so I mean, that was that, a, a blindfold test that kind of uh, struck me as such yeah. a fascinating record though as well because that i mean I, i'm still not even sure if i yeah. totally understand yeah. why but i mean to me the whole idea is that suddenly Jazz is repertory music and jazz yeah, with, the, totally. with the same reverence that's afforded to classical music. Yeah. And it's it all it all seemed to be the same jazz musicians complaining about it seem to be the ones that complain about the status of jazz uh-huh. not as an art form. Yeah. And then if you take it as repertory music, if you look at it, at what point does it stop being oh you know, yeah. you get down to well, the no, essence no, I think of it's what a, is what and I think it's a totally and, a totally brilliant concept because it's totally unimpeachable. If you say, oh, look, I understand there's a point to be made, but it's just such an unsubtle way of making it. You know, those guys are like, yeah, I know. And we're winding you up. You know, the people who say, well, it doesn't sound like Jimmy Cobb. Well, it's like, you know, Kevin Shea is a great musician. He knows it doesn't sound like, you know, yeah, he's I mean, not that's stupid. Not, you know, whilst on the one hand yeah. they're saying they're recreating and they're yeah. trying to do that. It's probably more yeah. offensive if someone yeah. said, "Oh, you know what? You sound exactly like yeah. Jimmy Cobb." There, <laughs> you know well, what it's I mean? kind of like, like mm. in in every in every single respect. I can't. I, there's not a criticism of that record to which I don't think they have a valid answer, which I kind of think is why yeah. the concept is so great because it's yeah. so a lot of people kind of, are talking about. Yeah, it, well, they yeah, really are, so. but it's but that's why it's so great is because it's sort of clever as an as an exercise. It's amazing. It's kind of funny. It's kind of ironic. It's also really unsubtle. But that's that's a little <laughs> bit like you know the the comedian who stands up and uses a gratuitous swear word. And there's and, that same you know, problem with the yeah. approach to that is that most people see no funny. Yeah. Most people see no context and, yeah, yeah. and just see this almost blasphemous approach. Yeah, yeah. Actually, I mean, to be fair, I think a lot of avant-garde and, mm. and jazz in general, yeah. there is a lot of opinion and reaction to all sorts of things. So the the reaction, we go back to when Ornette first started, yeah. you know, the same reactions are there. Yeah. When Bebop came out of swing, the reactions are there. Yeah, and, also, and that's kind of innovation. You get people coming out of colleges who, you know, they'll see their... They see a chord symbol and that cute, you know, it's kind of, when it's done badly, it's like painting by numbers. You see your chord with this sharp four yeah, and you say, this is what you replay. And yeah, that's, that, in, that in a very real chords. sense isn't improvising. Yeah. At least what they're doing is sort of playing what Miles did improvise. Where this is my two, five, one, you know, doesn't make a difference that, that 
that 251 is in Little Girl Blue or it's in Autumn Leaves, whatever, they just do their thing on yeah. that. So, you know, that in a very real sense is not improvising. You know, at least in some sense, playing note for note is at least capturing Miles, who actually was. You know, so it works on all these different levels. There's a track called Angel Normali by Andudu Pokwana, and that's the Lewis Moholo Moholo Quartet, which is, so I'm playing piano, there's John Edwards on bass, Meister on drums, and uh, Jason Yard on, um, on alto saxophone. It's, it's, amazing. it's, a, fair, it's a fairly newish group. I mean, John and Jason have played with Lewis for years and years and years and years. I've played with him for maybe five or six years now. Um, the quartet itself is a, is a newer thing, but it's a band we all love. We're going to got some stuff in Europe later in the year and going to Canada with it. Um, yeah, and Lewis is kind of, I guess, one of my most important musical relationships, really. Um, when I first met him, that, that was quite a nice story because it was a it was an Evan Parker quartet and Steve Beresford um, ordinarily plays piano in this quartet and Steve couldn't do it for some reason. So Evan called me and asked if I would, if I would play. Obviously, I did. I think Lewis had turned up and was ready to play, didn't know what was going on. So when somebody, some guy that he'd never, ever met came up on stage. He had no idea they were respecting piano, basically. So I hadn't even met him before we played the first set. But we got on like a house on fire. And then maybe a month or so after that, um, Lewis had a gig with his own group and I was in the audience. Between sets, he saw that I was in the audience and asked if I wanted to play the second set. And I, I always say when I was telling the story, I, I kind of crazy to say yes because I didn't know <laughs> any of the tunes other than the ones that I knew from the records. Um, any of the keys or anything but I've been even more crazy to say no so yeah and from that moment really I've just been lucky enough to do to do all, all, all his stuff and it's um it's kind of an honor really I mean he's one of the very small handful of the greatest living drummers um that you can hear from that you know that track I mean probably my greatest joy in live music is playing in three with Lewis it's you know the only thing that kind of come close was probably like what it was like playing in three with Elvin you know when that gets going it's, it's unbelievable and it's that irresistible thing you look for in a rhythm section of like it just it straddles that thing of like it's the most supportive thing that it could possibly be in the yeah. whole world mm. and yet it's also right on the cusp of just overwhelming you with the kind of the momentum and the power yeah and when lewis sits on the time like that it's just it's kind of an amazing experience i hear a real joy in his playing you can really tell he loves oh. music he loves doing what he does he joy for he, life he, really he, and... i mean the thing with the the south african expats 
um, you know, the, the Blue Notes and the guys who came to this mm. country, their story, their particular history, the place they came from is such a kind of a, a tragic one. You know, they lived in this country and they all, you know, they sort of said that they would never, never go home until Mandela was free. Lewis was the only one that survived to see that. And so they've come from sort of such a tragic thing. And then the, the music really kind of conveys all, all of this. I mean, the, the anger, the, the, I guess, not the nostalgia, that's the wrong thing, but playing, playing, you know, it was interesting. I think for me, you know, the longer they were in exile, the more they would play traditional South African tunes as well in the, and yeah, and that, that joyful thing, definitely. Um, it's kind of extraordinary. Lewis has something really in common with Sonny Rollins, I think, which is incapable of one thing musically. And the one thing that he's incapable of doing is playing at anything less than 100%. To wrap up, going back to start where we were, mm-hmm. we had a listen to your new trio album. Mm-hmm. It's a self-release. Um, what's the story? Um, so, you know, I've worked with labels plenty in the past and sort of very happily too. I mean, I'd, and it's something I, I'll, I will happily do again. Um, you know, and there are releases coming up on labels. Um, it was really just that part of a, I mean, clearly the, the, the landscape is changing for, for releasing music. Um, and on the one hand, you know, there's the, the digital realm. But on the other hand, you know, this kind of music that we're involved in, the the listeners still value uh, a, a physical artifact as well. Mm-hmm. And it, it's just interesting how to go about that these days. And, you know, the days are gone where being on a label um, in itself offers a vindication of your work or an indication of quality. Um, Does it change the way you feel about it? Does it feel more personal? Does um, it feel like you've got more invested in uh, it emotionally than... The others are all... Maybe. I, I don't know. Not... No. Well, I tell you I tell you why my answer is probably... I mean, yes, you, you do have a certain investment in it in a in a kind of a, a literal sense. And that transmutes to... Yeah, you, you do feel about it slightly differently. No, ultimately, because um, I, I won't release something that I don't want... Out, you know, I won't go to a label with something if I'm not convinced that it's the best example of what it yeah. is that it could be at that time you know i suppose we're lucky because we we're, we're in a music where even the big labels aren't massive sort of corporate behemoths i mean there are some maybe at the top <laughs> level who, and the, even the big labels mm. are small labels as it were we can have creative control now i'm aware that there are labels which don't give you total creative control and i wouldn't necessarily be interested in working with them but um, i've always been lucky in working with great labels which give total control to the artist i'm also lucky in that where i've worked on records for other people where there has been a producer involved you know where i've just it's been a sort of sideman gig for me i've always been lucky in that really enjoyed the work of the producer and i've been happy with choices that have been made um but also of course the psychology again you you, you'd never dare give anything less than 100 percent from playing wise but also the psychology of being the leader on a session as to being yeah. a session guy is, or not a session guy but a sort of sideman is a, is a different is a different psychology but um cool mm. do you want to plug anything that you've got do coming I want to plug out anything? Oh. Um, uh, well so actually later in May at the end of May I'm working for the first time with Anthony Braxton who's oh, sort of wow. one of my one of my huge heroes and it's a massive project in Turin called the Sonic Genome which sort of involves it's a durational performance that sort of lasts for eight hours and involves wow. 60 musicians and it's taking place in the Egyptian Museum in Turin so that will be I don't know what it'll be but that's the magic yeah. of it is you're not, so, it's not clear what it'll be um, but it'll be special whatever it is um, May I have a couple of dates uh, with with the Hammond organ group that we listened to earlier with um, Joe McPhee yeah in June Louis Moholo is back over from South Africa so we'll be hitting at 
the Vortex on the 16th of June, then the BIM House in Amsterdam on the 18th of June, then when we head to Canada for the festivals there. Yeah, there's plenty of stuff uh, keeping me out of trouble. Um, Europe with Mulatu, Estatke. I guess your dates will be up on your The dates, yeah, so, so that's it. There's a mailing it. list as well, which is... Oh yes, which is great. Which so, I um, which is yeah. If you wanted to go to my website, so um, so it's just www.alexanderhawkinsmusic.com. You can sign up to my newsletter, and there I will spam you. Promise not more than once a month, but with dates and so forth. And yeah, all my live dates are up there, and news of releases and stuff. So um, it's great. Yeah, I fantastic. keep getting excited about gigs, and then it's yeah. in a different country. Yeah, I, I yeah. I mean, you know, that's that's the drag of being a sort of creative that's, musician that's in this country well it's no it's not it's not no it is it is brilliant <laughs> but then by the same token the ticket that involves an yeah. airfare as well that, that is that yeah. is true no no look it's one of the real privileges of what we do isn't it that we yeah. get to see you, you get to go to places which you know you would never have dreamt of going to and but don't get me wrong one of the problems actually this is this can maybe be a slightly depressing coda to what <laughs> otherwise has been a really a really lovely conversation you know is that like i play the piano and the piano is a dying instrument in this country. That's the bottom line, is that there are very few venues where you can play and you can play the piano. Now, this isn't true in Europe, but, you know, if, uh, if I think about where I do my work, you know, in London, I can play it. Of course, the festivals aside, but they're, they're, they're not regular gigs. They come up once every so often and they're fantastic, of course. But, you know, in London, I will play at the Vortex or at Cafe Otto. You know, occasionally I'll get asked by some, somebody else to do something which would fit in at a different club. But really, there are very few venues with instruments and in a very real sense, the piano is kind of dying as an instrument in this kind of music. And um, it is slightly concerning to me that I play goodness knows how many more times abroad than at home. I mean, as we said, that's also great, but it, it does also seem weird that a, a country with such a venerable tradition mm. within this music, you know, the, 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 the opportunities should be, should be dying off. But then that ties into a whole sort of depressing conversation about um, state subsidy, about kind of suppression or ignorance of, of, of the arts or whatever. And, um, but it's been an absolute pleasure. Yes, thank you very much. Well, no, thank, thank you, you for so talking much. to me. No, not Fantastic. at all. So you've been listening to the Kungar Soundcast, episode three, with Alexander Hawkins. You can find out more about Alex's music and his recordings on his website, which is alexanderhawkinsmusic.com. You can also catch up with Alex direct on Twitter at Hawkins Music. As Sam mentioned during our chat with Alex, this is Moss Fried's guitar solo on track five, Underground, from the Spike Orchestra's Ghetto album.
Thank you once again for tuning into the Congar Soundcast Episode 3 with Alexander Hawkins. Please do subscribe to our Soundcast on iTunes. You can get in touch with us direct on Twitter at Congar Sound or even email us info at kungarsound.co.uk. Stay tuned for Episode 4 which is going to feature trombone outsider, amazing vocalist and all-round awesome dude Ashley Slater. This is the Kunga Soundcast!